Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your many blessings to us. We thank you for the things that we're learning in these health nuggets. And I pray that we will be able to apply them to our lives so we can feel better uh, and experience a better quality of life. And so we thank you for that as well. And now as we open up your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be here in our midst, that you will make it clear and plain. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last night... I felt like I didn't give us the big picture of what we're talking about, and I think we may have gotten lost in the details a little bit. And again, I'm not sure we can fix it, but there's several contrasts in the book of Revelation. And really, the point of last night was to highlight a contrast, okay? To look at some of these contrasts. Now, we didn't look at this. This is new, I suppose. But we have two leaders, the lamb and the dragon. You probably already noticed that. We have two signs, the seal of God and the mark of the beast. We're talking about that tonight. We have another contrast, two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. We have two women, the bride of Christ and the harlot woman. That's what we looked at last night, and we contrasted those two. We have two harvests of golden grain and of gory grapes. We have two spirits, Holy Spirit and a spirit of demons. Um, And then lastly, we have two choices, righteous and the unrighteous. And so we see all of these contrasts back and forth. If you're going to have a counterfeit, you have to have a genuine. And that's the same with tonight's topic with the mark of the beast. If there's a mark of the beast, then there's a genuine mark or seal. Okay? And so we're going to look at that. So last night we were trying to contrast these two women. We had the pure woman of Revelation chapter 12 and... It was a woman clothed with the sun. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world with the moon under her feet. The uh, sacrificial system of the Old Testament is kind of the lesser light pointing to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, the greater light, if you will. And on her head, a garland of 12 stars. We could talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. We could, in the Old Testament, we could talk about the 12 disciples in the New Testament. But the whole idea is we have a virtuous woman. The doctrine is pure. The woman is pure. The church is pure is pure. And then the inverse of that was this apostate system that was, well, in contrast and contradistinction, it was opposite of the pure woman. I don't know about you, but if there's two main churches that are contrasted at the end of time, I want to be in the pure church. What about you? With pure doctrine, following the Bible and the Bible only. And you might say, well, you're, you're picking on certain groups. I don't intend to pick on any group, but I do intend to share with you what I believe the Bible says on these topics. And if God thinks it's important, then maybe it's important, right? And so we looked at, and I'm not going to go through everything again, but some of the things that the verse brought out, and if it's in quotes, that's straight from the verse, but it talked about this uh, harlot or false doctrine. It says, it sits on many waters, influences many people, commits fornication with kings of the earth. That's this church and state uniting Okay, these are all aspects of this false church. Sitting on a scarlet beast, again, church and state. Seven hills on which the woman sits. We talked about how that was Rome. The only city with seven hills is Rome. Arrayed with purple and scarlet. We looked a little bit about blood uh, being the color for red or symbolic and royalty for purple. And so there's a church that talks about red and purple The blood of Christ equals royalty, but it doesn't bring in the law at all. And all the way through the Old Testament sanctuary, we have those three colors, but blue isn't here. They think the Ten Commandments were out of blue. Um, And so we talked about that. We have the cup of wine intoxicating with false doctrine, and then it was called Babylon. 
And then we talk a little bit about Babylon. What does that word infer in the mind of the listeners uh, in biblical times when they heard the term Babylon? And there's another list for that. Babylon literally means confusion or man-made system of religion. It also is associated with image worship, false teachings about death, and even sun worship. So if even still you get lost in all those details, the point is there's two churches. There's a pure church and there's a false church. There's one that you want to be part of and I want to be part of, and there's one that we want to stay away from, that we're being warned to stay away from in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to look a little bit more, not so much in the same chapter, but another chapter that talks and digs in a little bit deeper on this. So now we're going to get to, and if that still went over your head, I'm sorry. <coughs> we'll get Pastor, Pastor Hyman up here next time and he'll do a better job. Okay, Mark of the Beast exposed. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So what is the mark of the beast? That's the burning question, isn't it? What is it? I want to know what it is. How can I avoid getting something if I don't know what it is? Right? Well, it talks about a forehead, the mark of the beast written on the forehead or on the hand, all these kinds of things. Is it going to be a literal tattoo? 666, we're going to force like a branding iron, just... Is that what we're talking about? I mean, if that's the case, I know pretty well, and so do you, that you don't have it. I haven't seen anybody here walking around the number 666 on their forehead. <coughs> is that, in fact, the mark of the beast? Some say, well, it is a government identification number. That's the mark of the beast. Now, I would, uh, I would consent to the fact that there is some corruption in the government. <laughs> I would also say that we have a far better government. I think we're blessed to live in this country as opposed to many other countries. But I don't think that's what this is talking about in Scripture. We're going to look at the Scripture in a minute, but I don't think it's a government identification number. Is it a barcode on a can in a grocery store? You know, those have been out for some time, so that's not so much of a scare. But it used to be, that's the mark of the beast. It's kind of like when I show anything uh, to my uncle on my phone. I remember when uh, PDAs were new, before it was a phone, and you could pass things back and forth. You want an address I have? I'll just beam it to you. You remember those days? Any of you techie nerds out there? <clears throat> and I'd show it to my uncle and he'd say, that must be voodoo. <laughs> and so it's kind of this running joke. Anything, you know, I just got an email. Oh, that, that sounds like voodoo. No, it's not voodoo. It's technology. And the same with this barcode. In fact, the next thing that I've been told by a friend of mine who works in the industry is that they have a, a little chip that they can put on all of their, or all of the groceries, or anything in a store for that matter, and you register with your credit card or whatever it might be, and all you do is you put everything in the cart, and you walk out of the store, and beep, it rings everything up instantly. No more waiting in lines. And I said, oh, this sounds wonderful. When is it going to come out? <clears throat> And they said, well, the big holdback is that the little chip to put on all the groceries or whatever the item, I think they said it costs about 19 cents or something. And they said, if they could get that cost down to about six cents or even four cents, then it probably would be a thing. And you'd just walk out. It wouldn't even matter if you were shoplifting, right? You just stick it in your pocket and away you go and you're charged. <laughs> is that the mark of the beast? I don't think that it is. Uh, it just helps us get out a little bit faster than if they have to punch the numbers in for everything. Um, <clears throat> is it a number on a credit card? Has anybody been issued this card right here? What's your number? 666, 
666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666666
Waters is a symbol of people in prophecy. Uh, now, you have to be careful. You're not going to apply that everywhere water is mentioned in Scripture. But when we're talking prophecy, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, you probably can apply this rule and it will make more sense. And then all of these various beasts that we have seen before, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, all of them represent a power, don't they? And so we're thinking of a power when we're thinking of a beast. Daniel 7.23 helps us with, with this. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom or power on the earth. So we're thinking of about a power, we're thinking about a kingdom when we read those verses in Revelation 13. A beast is often a political power. So the beast represents a political or religious power, and that's what we're looking at here tonight. So continuing on, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Who gave it to him? The dragon. The dragon. Now, oftentimes in, in prophecy and revelation, it speaks of the dragon, that old serpent, the devil. But we had to be careful, too. I'm not saying it, it doesn't mean that necessarily, but we also have a beast that's a dragon that we've already looked at, right? Uh, you remember Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I don't care for this picture. It's not hanging up in my house. But what this is a, a depiction of a dragon, and of course, it has all these horns, and so it's a really interesting looking dragon. So to look at that verse that is coming up out of the dragon also could be symbolized, and I believe it does, it's coming out of Rome. And this is simply to um, make plain this idea. We still use beasts, by the way, for countries. But we have to make sure we're looking at the beasts in Scripture versus the ones now. Otherwise, we might get confused. Because the dragon today would be characteristic of what nation today? Probably China is what comes to mind, right? We have different beasts, if you want to call them that, for the political parties. You're probably tired of, of all that kind of stuff. Uh, what animal is also signified? I'm, I'm getting away with this slide. But when you think of the United States of America? The eagle, right? Yeah. Now, the lion today is England. Okay, very good. But in Bible times, the lion, and this one even is depicted with a wing. This is what archaeologists have told us. The lion was Babylon. And so we want to make sure we're pulling that symbolism from Scripture and not just what's current today. So Revelation 12, 4 and 5, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, the dragon, I believe, is the devil wanting to devour Jesus, but it's also the devil working through which power? Rome, which is also the dragon, right? So it's really both of those. So dragon is symbolic of Satan, but it's also can be symbolic of Rome as well. I believe in Revelation 12, Satan works through pagan Rome to destroy Jesus. It's the two working together. Does that make sense? So a Roman official tried to kill baby Jesus. We've looked at this before. A Roman governor condemned Jesus. A Roman executioner crucified Jesus. Uh, a Roman uh, emblem was sealed on his tomb and soldiers guarded it. So all of that, Satan is working through Rome. And who did the dragon, pagan Rome, give its power, throne, and great authority to? That's the question we're asking based on that text. Because it says the dragon give, gave its power and and throne and great authority. So the beast of Revelation 13, we're going to look at six identifying characteristics. 
And we're going to find out. Maybe the mark of the beast is one of you. Do you fit any of these things? Anybody here come from Rome? From a very populated area? No, there might be a few of you that are just deciding not to raise your hand. If so, you're still on the table. We're still considering you. <clears throat> Don't be too nervous. All right. Number one, authority from pagan Rome. We've established that. This is a professor of history in the University of Rome, by the way. It says, to the succession of the Caesars, or the kings, if you want to think of it that way, came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome, or the popes, if you will. Um, when Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. Now, just to give you a quick history lesson, when the Roman Empire was falling apart and it was crumbling, Constantine recognized he had to do something different. And so he wanted to reestablish his empire someplace else, but he didn't want to leave that area. I think Constantinople is where he went, in the country of Turkey. But he didn't want to leave this without anybody. And so who did he put in his place? The Pope. And so that's what we see Constantine doing. He put a pope in the place to rule. And so that's how he kind of got his big start, if you will, in terms of political power. Stanley History, page 40, says, The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. So that's what one historian writes about that. So the beast is not a person, but it's a religious political system. If it was a single person, that person's long gone. You understand? But we're talking about a system, a political religious system. So the beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that grew up out of Rome. Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Another hint. Is this going to be some small, isolated sect or group or cult or whatever you want to call it that nobody's ever heard of except for Google? No. This is going to be a major player on the scene, a major world power because of this part right here. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. So he's a worldwide religious power. Anybody here a worldwide religious power? Do we have anybody that's still on the table? Maybe you came out of Rome, out of a populated area, and, oh, you're not a worldwide religious power. Oh, <clears throat> unless there's something about you I don't know. <laughs> Revelation 13, 5, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So there's a spokesperson for this entity that has a mouth that speaks and speaks blasphemies. Uh, how did the Bible define blasphemy? Well, if we go back, uh, really, Christ is the only one that can pay and die for our sins, right? There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. How many options do we have? One, not half a dozen, not three or four. We don't have a bank on every corner. This is coupon works at all these various fast food chains. No, there's one, one way, one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is 
also able to save to the uttermost. Now, this is a beautiful text. I know we're proving a different point, but if you're discouraged because you feel like you're too bad and, and God can't save you and all the rest, you are severely mistaken. Okay? He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him, come to God through him. And who's the him? Since he always lives to make intercession for them through Jesus, isn't it? He saves to the uttermost. And it's through him. Not through any means you choose or desire. John 10, The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, in reference to Jesus, but for blasphemy... We have a definition practically coming up. And because you, being a man, so they thought, make yourself God. So at the heart of this idea of blasphemy is you think you're God when really you're a man. If I stood here tonight and told you, by the way, I'm God. And here's what you have to do. And how you're going to do it and all the rest. Uh, I imagine many of you would say, hmm, any red flags go up? Yeah. So that's really the Bible definition of blasphemy. And we have times when uh, the people of God, so to speak, in quotes, tried to take Jesus to the cliff because he was speaking blasphemy. No one can say those things except God. In essence, they were saying, you are not God. We don't believe you. Now, if they would have studied their Bibles... There were plenty of prophecies, including the 2300 days that would have told him he came right on time, right? And we looked at that already. So does the Roman church make that claim? Now we could try and bring in other people. So we're not trying to pick on this church. I'm not trying to pick on this church, but I believe this is what the Bible is talking about. And I haven't found any other churches that are big and influential that are making this claim. And so we continue to ask these questions. Encyclical letters of Leo the 13th, we hold upon this earth the place of, what does it say? My, my, my. We hold the place of God Almighty. What would you think if I stood here and said, I hold the place? I'm not going to say it. Blasphemy, that's what you'd say. Mark 2, 7, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Another reason they want to take Jesus to the cliff is this idea that he said, your sins are forgiven, pick up your mat and walk, or whatever it is. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Healing, that's one thing, but to forgive a man's sins, only God does that. And they wanted to kill him. They were upset with him. Um, This is the dignity and duties of the priest. So if I'm a new priest and I want to understand what my duties are, this is the book I go to. And when I'm reading along in volume 12, page two, I come across this. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgments of his priests. So who's in charge of who? Well, God's obligated. If I'm a priest, he's obligated to me. Well, if you don't believe me, write this one down. Dignity and Duties of the Priest, volume 12, page 2. And either not to pardon or to pardon. So I'm going to decide, not God, if you're forgiven or not forgiven. And that poses all kinds of of issues in my mind. Because first of all, who can read your heart and my heart? Only God can do that. How much of sin is is, is out here and how much of it's in here? 
But if God is the one that's obligated to abide by the judgment of the priest who can't read the heart, who doesn't know the motives, I'm starting to have a real hard time with that. Are you? I don't know. Let's continue. According as they refuse, let's back up here again. God himself is not obligated to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution or forgiveness. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. So he's just waiting for the priest to give him his marching orders. Are we going to save this person or not? Let me know. I'll let you know by the end of the week. Okay. Well, just, you know. I'd like to know when you know, but I don't want to bother you. <clears throat> Interesting. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God alone is this high priest who is interceding on our behalf. And I'm thankful for that because not only is he God, not only is he sinless and perfect, not only did he live the perfect life and die in my place, but he's walked in my shoes, right? He knows what it's like to be a human. He can relate with us and understand on a level that others cannot in the heavenly realms. And he is our intercessor. He's our high priest. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So we have authority from pagan Rome, worldwide religious power, claims equality with God. We're just pointing these out of the text. And if you think you can come up with something else that fits all of these, I'd be very curious to hear about it. Okay? <clears throat> Revelation 13, 7. It is granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So here we are back again in Revelation 13. We're looking for characteristics of this beast. And he was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What could that mean? Persecution? Anybody here persecuted saints? Not yet. <clears throat> okay. Um, there was a period in the Roman Catholic Church, or just in, in history, I suppose, we call it the Dark Ages. Why was it the Dark Ages? Well, there's several reasons for that. The Bible was basically went underground, didn't it? Nobody had access to it. And along with that, anybody that was not giving their full allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church in any way that they deemed that they should, what happened? Persecution. Persecution. They weren't slapping anybody on the wrist. They were chopping off wrists and heads and other things too. It was a real bloodbath. Um, in fact, I don't have there, somewhere I put the statistics of how many. It says, did church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who do not go along with its teachings? Yes, it did. <clears throat> it says this, the church has persecuted only a tyro in church history will deny that. Tyro is another word for beginner or novice. Only a novice would deny the fact that that's taken place. Um, and here's my note here. They thought they, it is thought that, that 30 million Christians were persecuted by the church. 30 million. How many million did Hitler how does six stack up against 30? Yeah, five times. Um, and the church doesn't deny this. In fact, this just happened, I think, of, in June 
28 of last year, at least that's when the paper said, I don't know, it may have been the day before, but in June of last year, this is Pope Francis, and he is apologizing, asking forgiveness of this man. Who's this man? Does anybody know? No, it's not Rick Warren. This is one of the leaders. I don't know who received him, but whether he's a pastor or a leader or something, but he's representing the Waldensians that were persecuted. And he said, please forgive us for what we did. Now, that's, that's good to ask for forgiveness, but it's kind of recognizing too, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, this is in public ecclesiastical law. So this is part of the law of the Catholic Church. And look at what this says. The church may, by divine right, what's the authority here? Divine right. I'm God. Because of who I claim to be, because of divine right, I can confiscate the property of heretics. You can't do this, my brother. I have the divine right, and I'm taking it. I like my view. Too bad. Imprison their persons. So I don't like to hear you complain anyway, so I'm going to send you to prison and condemn them to the flames. And what right do they have? According to this, divine right. That's their authority. And they still have this. They, they, they just choose not to talk about it much because they're not in a position just yet. But I believe there's a lot of positioning happening. Um, anyway, so we have authority from pagan Rome, worldwide religious power, claims equality with God, and persecuting power. Anybody else come to mind besides the one we're talking about? I mean, if you just have one or two, but by the time you start adding three and four and the list grows, it's harder and harder to make somebody else fit. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, we've already studied that in prophecy, a month is, or I should say a day, equals a year in Bible prophecy. So when we have this random number that's thrown out, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. We can't just apply this anywhere in Scripture, but when we're talking about beasts and, and the, the language is obviously different, we can apply this day for a year principle. So if we have 42 months, let's do a little math here to try and prove the, uh, the beast power here, the prophecy, one pr prophetic day equals one little year. We have two texts here that give us that, uh, Ezekiel 4, 6, Numbers 14, 34, uh, but to me, the biggest proof is the fact that the 2,300 days just works so perfectly. That, to me, is the biggest proof. So if we take that principle, 42 prophetic months, and in prophecy, you have 30 days for every month. So that gives you 1,260 prophetic days or literal years. So this power was going to have power, absolute power, for 42 months or 1,260 years, literal years. So if we apply this and we start at AD 538, it will take us to AD 1798. So can we just make up dates and assign things? No, I wouldn't recommend us doing that. Um, I guess I don't have a slide for that. I'll just have to tell you. But the Roman emperor Justinian gave the Pope of Rome religious and civil authority in 538. He gave that. Justinian, if you're writing it down. Probably you just type in Justinian, 538, Pope. Bing! Pop up. You know what I mean when I say that, right? 
And then after 1,260 years, it was to receive, according to the text, a deadly wound. I'm not sure if we looked at that part of the passage yet, but that's what's going to happen. So if we fast forward here to 1798, what's going to happen with the Pope in 1798? It's going to receive a deadly wound. So Berthier, one of Napoleon's generals, entered Rome in 1798. He felt intimidated by the Pope. He didn't like. He felt challenged. So he sent his, his general Berthier down there to take the Pope captive, to put him in prison. He actually died in captivity in 1798. Deadly wound. And everybody was rejoicing because they thought the Pope is done away with. It's done. I mean, you, you think about this. At the end of the Dark Ages, he was not popular. And in fact, you look at history up until relatively recently, um, the Pope never came out of the building ever. You never saw them. They were never out in public. I mean, when I say ever, I mean ever, like never, ever, never, ever. Um, largely because they weren't popular. And so the Pope went in captivity. Everybody was excited. Everyone was rejoicing because he was done away with once and for all. He received a deadly wound. And his influence certainly plummeted. Had a time of power, 1,260 years, and that came to an end, according to the starting point. When he was given religious and political power, and when he was taken in captivity, the Bible prophecy fits. Is that by chance? I don't think so. God knows what he's talking about. Um, what does history tell us about these remarkable events? Church history, page 24, says the murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city or the Vatican and putting an end to the papal temporal power. And so the aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence and the enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned and everybody was, was cheering and so excited. So what does the Bible say? And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. What kind of a wound is a mortal wound? Yeah. It's one that kills you, right? If I'm, if I'm going to suffer from a mortal wound, I'm going to die. Saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was? Wait a second, the wound was healed. The Pope didn't just go away and never come back again. But it was healed. Do we see the Pope healing today? Oh, man. I don't know if we can even say, well, it's not healing. I believe it is healed. Talk about power and influence. Already, this Pope that we have, he's wasting no time at all. And I have a lot of respect for a lot of the things that he's doing and the humility that he's showing. I mean, what do they call him? The people's Pope. You've heard it too. Because he blesses people. In fact, he brought, who did he bring back on his airplane? Uh, some refugees, didn't he? From his last visit? I mean, people are, this is unheard of. This doesn't happen. But he's doing it, and they're saying, this is the people's pope. In fact, they're, they're making t-shirts now. Uh, maybe I'll put one on the, the list next time of how people just, they love the pope. It's the people's pope. So his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed, some translations say, wondered after the beast. Marveled and wondered. I feel like we're already there. We don't have to wait for anything to happen. We're there. In 1929, San Francisco Chronicle uh, had this in the headline. I know that's a little ways back, 
But Mussolini is the Italian leaner, Gaspari is the Catholic cardinal, and this is what they printed on February 11, 1929. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. Boom, a big, you know, huge story, front line. Uh, it wouldn't surprise us today, but in affixing the autographs to the memorial document, healing the wound. Notice the terminology. Healing the wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. I mean, this idea, really, of the Roman Catholic Church fulfilling this prophecy is not new. This is old. I'm not telling you anything new. This is old, okay? But so many people are, are unaware of it because nobody talks about it, hardly. So we have authority from pagan Rome, worldwide religious power, claims equality with God, persecuting power, and reigns for 1,260 years. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. <clears throat> now I've heard a lot of people say, this whole idea of 666 and on and on and on. Well, let me, <clears throat> let me go. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Perfection in scripture is symbolized by the number seven. We see that over and over and over again. Six is a symbol of rebellion, really. It's, it's shy of perfection. It's incomplete. And we see that over and over and over. In Daniel, we have this image. Remember the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? And he was the head of gold. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be the head. I'm going to be the whole statue. I'm going to be all gold. I'm not going anywhere. The dimensions of this, does anybody remember? 60 and 6. It wasn't 70 and 7. It was 60 and 6. So here you have ideas of this 6 and rebellion. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. A number is 666. One of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarious Filet Day. In fact, it used to be on this hat that he would wear, this tall hat. And it was right here across the top. Um, or Vicar of the Son of God. And if you add up all of these uh, numbers here, these Roman numerals, it comes up to 666. Now, I've talked before about the fence posts and things lining up. There is a real great possibility. In fact, it's not totally uncommon that you can take your own name and add up all of the characters. You can go online, they'll tell you what the values of each one is, and your name might come up to 666. Ah! What does that mean? I would submit to you it means absolutely nothing. Okay? Because you don't have all the other characteristics behind it. If we're going to base our theology on one fence post, where's the fence go? We can go anywhere I wanted to. So just because your name or somebody else's name might come up to 666, that's great. But just because somebody else was born in Rome, a populated pl place, that's great. Do you see my, my point here? So it's not that one of them fits, it's that all of them fit. And some people have given this one a bad rap. Oh, you're basing it all on the number. No, we're not. In fact, I think you could take the number away altogether from the text, even though God chose to put it in there, and we still could come up with a very clear understanding of this passage. Don't you agree? All right. So the number of his name is 666. <clears throat> and I think there's some symbolism there, too, of rebellion, as we've seen in some of these other passages. 
So he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. There it is. Bum, bum, bah. <laughs> Come back tomorrow night. I'm going to have prayer and we'll be done. No, I'm kidding. Okay. And that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so that's where we get the idea of, well, 666 tattooed across the forehead or on my wrist. Well, <clears throat> you're going to be disappointed with me, but Bible prophecy, uh, there's lots of symbols. And so we have the mark of the beast. Before I tell you definitively what is the mark of the beast... We're going to switch and look at the seal of God. Because the seal of God helps us understand the mark of the beast. So I know you won't go anywhere until I'm done, right? For every counterfeit, there's a genuine. Is it true? Yes. Yeah. There's no counterfeit unicorn. Anyway, to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand God's sign, seal, or mark. If six is rebellion and seven is perfection, perhaps seven has to do with God's seal. Let's see. Revelation 7, 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So here's this idea of not a mark this time, but a seal, and it's going on the forehead. Does it say anything about the hand? Did we leave that out? Is that the next verse? Is there another slide? Nope, there's not another slide. God's seal is only in the forehead. How come? Well, the forehead is symbolic of, what do we have right here behind our forehead? Brain. Brain. And our frontal lobe is where we make our, our decisions and where judgment is housed and all those things. But virtually the, the whole brain, right? We don't have to pick the brain apart. But this is where we're convicted of things. This is where we do things. I don't know too many people that act out sins by using their brain. Now, I understand you can think impure thoughts and all of those things. But even then, as you're thinking those things, it's going to lead you to do something, right? And so here, God's seal is in the forehead. He's not going to coerce or force anybody, whereas the mark of the beast, it's in the forehead. He can just trick people all together, or he'll just force them and coerce them. And he doesn't care which. God cares. He says, I don't want to force or coerce anybody. I want them to follow me because they love me, right? And so he wants it in the forehead. He's not concerned with the hand. Does that make sense? So forehead is convinced it is right. Hand is coerced to go along with it. God never uses force. I believe that to be true. If so, we would have done away with this sin problem a long time ago, and he just would have forced everybody. But we've talked about that before. If you force love, it's not love. It's rape, isn't it? It's not the same thing at all. Romans 4, verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness. Now, you might be thinking, what does circumcision have to do with this? Absolutely nothing. We're looking at this idea that it's a sign and it's a seal in the Bible. Sign or seal represents the same thing. Are you with me? Sign and seal are virtually synonymous. So this, Isaiah 8, 16 says, the se seal the law among my disciples. So it's talking about sealing the law. 
Here's another verse, Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign or seal between them and me. Are you picking up on it? And so we have a seal of God. Now, if we go looking for a seal in the Ten Commandments, not an act of rebellion, but a true seal of God, where might we find it? Well, a seal authenticates a document. Uh, we homeschool our kids and we... <clears throat> Uh, they finished their year a little bit early because they were working hard. And so we said, what should we do? Elizabeth says, I know, we'll give them a gumball. I said, no, 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 we got to go, we got to do more than that. And so we went downstairs and I got a template of uh, a Word document and I printed off all this fancy wording and put their full name and, and I printed out, she says, no, we got to have their middle name. Full. Okay, okay. So I went back and I did all that and I printed it out and color looked really nice. And then I have one of these Similar to this right here, it doesn't say seal, it says DNW, and I use it to stamp, somebody gave it to me as a gift, I use it to stamp my books, because no one, unless they tear the page out of the book, but if you do it several times, sometimes libraries do that, so I took this stamp and I put it right in the middle, it was very official, right? Well, a seal authenticates a document, if you have to go to the bank, get something notarized, same idea. And if you look, every seal, here we're going to use the President of the United States as an example. Every seal, it says, the seal of the President of the United States. Um, and so every seal has a name. So if I were to use a seal, or of Abraham Lincoln, let's use him, we would use a seal, he would say, my name is Abraham Lincoln. I am the President of the United States. Kind of backs up who this person is, right? If somebody writes you a very official letter, or it looks official, and they just sign it, Nicholas. You might be like, who are you? Why do I care? You owe me X amount of money, Nicholas. Ooh, right? But if it's signed, Nicholas, and it has his title, what, his, what might his title be? Treasurer, collection officer of the IRS, or something like this. All of a sudden, whoa! I don't know Nicholas, but I know the IRS. I know the collection agency. And I know, you know, all of a sudden it has more weight, right? <clears throat> so we're in the Ten Commandments. We're looking for a seal of God. We're looking for these characteristics, name, title, and territory. Fourth commandment. Is this a shock to anybody? I told you, just set this on the shelf if you weren't sure about it. This is where we're pulling it off the shelf, and we're going to see why is the Sabbath so important? Why can't I just worship on one day? Versus any day. I mean, what, or, you know, why are you being so picky and so legalistic the seventh day and on and on? You always talk about the Sabbath. Leave it alone. Here's why. You're seeing tonight why. We're taking it off the shelf. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord made. So, Lord is what? Is the name. Made is creator. And what does he have? Uh, territory? Heavens and the earth. And it goes on, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. So here we have the seal of God, even in the Ten Commandments, specifically in the Fourth Commandment. You don't have it in the other commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Says who? I mean, it's the same person that's giving the whole list. But only here do we have the name, the title, and the territory. Right here in the Fourth Commandment. <clears throat> Heavens and the earth. Let's make them wiggle. Okay. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so we have God's seal right there. Fourth commandment. Um, God's seal contains the name, Lord your God, 
title, creator, or made, and territory, heaven and earth, right there. And we've seen over and over again in the book of Revelation, it talks about here's the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God. See how all these pieces are starting to come together? They're all coming together in a beautiful way. Not our idea, God's idea. But I think he wants us to know something. Would you agree? Ezekiel 20, 20. Hallow my Sabbath and they will be a sign. There's that word again. It's really the same idea as a mark. It just sounds a little nicer. There'll be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And so God has this sign and the devil has to come up with a counterfeit, which is his mark. God has something true and genuine and pure and beautiful. He has our best interests at heart. He wants to give us rest. He wants us to be loyal to him. And if you stop and think about it, if you look at all the Ten Commandments, of all of them, you could say the most arbitrary. You know what I mean by arbitrary? Random. The Fourth Commandment. Remember the seventh day. Why don't we remember the first day? Why don't we remember Wednesday? I mean, if it literally said, remember the third day to keep it holy, we would do that, right? There's nothing in our minds that says, this is common sense. Thou shall not kill. You know, oh, that's common sense. There'd be havoc everywhere. Thou shall not commit adultery. Well, that's common sense, but that's really being attacked pretty significantly, or it will be soon enough at the rate we're going. But all these other things, it's, it's common, no other gods before me. Yeah, it's common sense. But you get to the fourth commandment. What's this day? Does it have to be this day? Why is it so specific? And on and on and on, and it's seventh day. It is arbitrary, but it's a sign. If you will be faithful to me. I think it was during this Doug Batchelor thing, I talked, I gave an illustration about a farmer. He was going to inherit the farm. I don't have time to tell you the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. He was going to inherit his father's farm, and he really was excited about this. He had gone to school. He had learned all these things. He would take all these pH samples. I mean, the soil has pH just like our bodies have pH. It was talked about tonight. And he would take all these samples to figure out which crops would do best. And then there was crop rotation and which ones work well together. And this one prepares it next year for this crop and all the rest. And so he's really excited, but his dad said, no, if, if you're going to take over the farm, if I'm going to will the farm to you, first you have to plant everything like I've told you to plant it for this first year. And you can do all your soil tests and everything else, but I'm going to map out the farm and you have to do it just like I say. I'm going to take your mom on a cruise that's long overdue. And when I get back, I'll check on your work. And if you've been faithful to what I've asked you to do, then you'll, you can inherit the farm. Seem pretty simple? Pretty straightforward? Sure. So I said, all right, dad, you got it. He was kind of leave it to beaver type. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I'm just thinking of that. What are some of the words they used to say in those shows? I don't remember, no? Oh, yeah, they'd say some of those too. Okay. Um, So they went on their cruise, and he went and he did all of his soil samples everywhere. And sure enough, dad was right on. This would be the perfect place to plant corn. This would be the perfect place for soybeans and for okra and on down the list, all the way on this huge farm until he got to this little plot down by the river. And all of a sudden, his soil sample said that he should plant uh, lima beans. And instead, his dad said to plant tomatoes. And he says, tomatoes are all wrong. They're never going to even produce anything. Well, what should he do? (coughs) He says, I'm going to plant. Which one did I say his dad told him? Tomatoes is what his dad said. That's what he should have planned. He says, it's going to be all wrong. I'm going to surprise you. He's going to be so happy. He's probably a typo anyway. 
And so, I don't know if it's a typo, a scribble And he says, I'm going to put my lima beans there. And sure enough, dad came back and he walked around the farm. Boy, everything looks good. This is great. This is wonderful. You've done such a fine job. And then they go down to that little patch by the river and all of a sudden there's soybeans. No, lima beans. Anyway, there's lima beans down there instead of tomatoes. And he says, oh, son, what did you do down here? Oh, I know, Dad. You told me to plant tomatoes, but I did my pH sample, and that was going to be all wrong. In fact, they wouldn't even hardly grown here, but this would have been perfect, and so I planted it. Don't they look great, Dad? And he says, yeah, I knew. I told you to plant tomatoes there on purpose. I knew that they would totally rot on the vine. We wouldn't get anything out of it. But I wanted to see if you'd be faithful to me and plant and do just as I asked you to do. As the parable goes, he didn't inherit the farm. Why? Because he didn't obey his dad at all. He obeyed his pH tests and what made sense in his mind all the way through. And on this one where it didn't disagree, what did he follow? Like he'd done all the rest. He made his own choice. And I think when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we have people that say, oh, all the rest of those make sense. But this fourth one, I don't know. What's the big deal? I'm going to plant soybeans. And God says, this is my sign to see if you're listening, to see if you're truly faithful to my word, to sign. All right. The Sabbath is God's sign of loyalty or faithfulness to the creator. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast, I submit to you, is worship. I mean, after all, we have God's uh, seal right there in the fourth commandment. The whole commandment's about worship, who we worship, why we worship, why is he entitled to our worship, all of those kinds of things. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It's about worship. How we worship. Are we going to worship our way or God's way? As he asks us to or as we want to? That's the central issue. Continuing on, then a third angel in these three angels' message followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships, there's that word again, the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God. It's about worship. It's about a seal or a mark. And it's one or the other. I'm not into the seal or mark business. I'm not going to do either one. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If the commandments weren't important, that verse wouldn't be there. This is the, the end of the book. And he says, The commandments are still binding. And I'm going to have a people on this earth that are still faithful, not just to the ones that make sense in their own mind. I'm going to have a people that follow all because I was the one that asked them. Because I'm the creator God who made the heavens and the earth. That's what gives me my authority to say something that might appear to be random, but I know what's best for them. I know how their body is made up. I know what, what they need. And they need rest every week. I'm going to give it to them. It's going to be a sign. So in Revelation Three angels' message, we have worshiped the creator. We have don't worship the beast in verse 9. And we have keep the commandments and, faithful and, and faith of Jesus in verse 12. What does the Roman Catholic Church claim is a sign of its authority? Sunday. Sunday. We've looked at that already, haven't we? 
They don't make any bones about it. Catholic record. This is their own work, okay? This isn't anything we're saying about them. This is what they're saying about themselves. Sunday is our, what word do they use? Mark. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. Oh, really? And thus transference of the Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Layman's terms, proof's in the pudding. Don't believe me? Go down the road on Sunday morning and see how many parking lots are full. That's the proof of our authority. Sunday's our mark. So God's mark is the Sabbath, seventh-day Sabbath. Catholic or Roman church's mark is Sunday. And so many Protestants have adopted that mark as well. What is the mark of the beast? Sunday. That's what it is. It's not on anybody's forehead or hand. Now, what's his forehead or hand? It's because some know better, but they are coerced and they do it anyway. Or they're just tricked into doing it. Some are, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, do people have the mark of the beast now? No. That's why we have come out of her, that's how we ended last night, come out of her what people? My people. So God has his people in other denominations all over the place, and he's calling them to come out. Come out my people. So nobody has the mark yet, but someday this issue is going to continue to climax and build and build and build, and tomorrow night we're going to see how it climaxes and builds and is doing that even now in this country. But eventually everyone will have the opportunity to see this and to be able to be convicted of this. Not just hear it. I mean, I could go on some street corner and babble all day long at the top of my lungs about the Sabbath and people walking by, would, what would they say? Oh, I'm convicted. No, they'd say, he's a lunatic. Yeah. I've seen lunatics before. I know what they look like. He's one of them. They're not convicted. And I could, you know, go away like this, say, well, Lord, I was faithful. I did my part. I done warned them. Now, no. A time will come when people will have an opportunity and they'll be convicted of the truth. And then the question comes, what do they do with that conviction? What do they do with that conviction? There are times in our relationships with our spouses or our kids or whomever when we're hurting them significantly and we don't even know it. And we can do one of two things. We can say, well, what's the big deal? You know I love you. Quit being a legalist. Or we could say, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I literally, I mean, I'm a guy. I had no idea. But I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. If it bothers you that much, I'll do something different, please. But I'm sorry. Eventually, everybody will have that opportunity to make that choice. We need to be done. Some other quotes. Perhaps the boldest thing, this is St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel. Again, this is their stuff, not our stuff. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any direction noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Okay. I believe there's going to be people that are faithful to God. 
God's going to have a people on the earth that want to follow him fully and totally. And they're going to be willing to take their stand like these three Hebrews did. Amidst peer pressure, amidst, you know, there's a lot of parallels here to the end of time. I mean, the death decree and all these things, we're going to look at that tomorrow, but these three decided to stand. Though the heavens fall, they were going to stand for God. Right? Even when church and state united. In the future, the final issue of loyalty, I believe, will center around worship. And I believe the scripture is plain on that. We'll look at it more tomorrow. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to take a stand. Was it easy to take a stand then? No. But those that did were in the ark of safety. Christ and his holy word, the Bible, is our only ark of safety in these times. Because I believe a a flood is coming. In the days of Daniel, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of Jesus, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of early Christians, God invited his people to take a stand. In the dark ages, same thing. God invited his people to take a stand. In the last days, I believe, we're living in the last days. God again invites us to take a stand. To stand up and stand out. Jesus was willing to stand up and stand out for you and I. It wasn't easy. It wasn't popular. It wasn't fun. It was painful. But I promise he'd do it all over again for you if he had to. And when I think about all that he did for me, how can I not do this little thing for him? I mean, really. He's not asking me to go labor in a minefield somewhere. He's asking me to rest. To rest in him. And his salvation. And maybe he's calling you to do the same. Dear Heavenly Father, it's really that simple. And I'm convicted in my heart, even at this very moment, I want to decide right now to follow Jesus. And anything your word asks me to do, if I'm convicted of it, Lord, I want to follow. Lord, I know that I'm human. I know I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. But you promised not only to give us the truth, but to give us power to live the truth. And so, Lord, we want to follow you. We want to ask you to help us to follow you, to give us the courage to stand for you in these times, in these days in which we live, because we're on borrowed time. We believe you're coming soon. And we don't want there to be any doubt in anyone's mind that we have chosen to serve you and follow your word only. In your name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.